Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up from the sea, each different from one another. Four beasts climbed out of the water, four violent, terrifying creatures. But what were they, and what did they come to do? That'll be the focus of today's study from Daniel 7. Across the centuries of mankind, there's been all sorts of prophets. There's always been folks who have attempted to look forward and anticipate future events. Now, how have they done? How has the track record been as you think of these folks? My sense is that whether you're talking about Gene Dixon all the way back to Nostradamus, those who have attempted to divine and understand the future, unaided by the sovereign, omniscient God of all creation, have largely failed. In the, the 21st century, we have an ability to keep track of the prophecies that folks have made over the centuries. And there is such thing as a scorecards for each one of the individuals I've mentioned. And what they teach us is that of all the modern-day soothsayers and prophets and the like, statistically, folks are wrong considerably more than when they're right, by a percentage of like 80 to 90 percent. And the few things that they seem to get correct are those sort of things that, you know, broken watches right twice a day. It's those sorts of things. That's the track record of mankind trying to understand the future, unaided by an omniscient, all-powerful God in doing so. That's the track record. And because of these inaccuracies, the followers of Gene Dixon, they're largely broke. Followers of Harold Camping, you might remember him, they're largely homeless. The followers of Marshall Applewhite, they're dead. Those who follow false prophets do so to their own destruction. By contrast, one book stands out against all that. One book stands out where you read something that is anticipated centuries earlier and you can point to its exact fulfillment time and time and time again. There's one book that does that. That's scripture. Time and again, the, the nature, the scope, the details, even very nuanced details are fulfilled in real time and real space throughout the history of man. Now, let's pretend that we don't agree with that. Let's say we have questions about that. Let's say that we doubt that. Well, in today's reading, the prophet Daniel, he by himself is just a man of flesh and blood like you and I. But the prophet Daniel is going to detail and write down events with incredible detail of what happened centuries later after he was dead. And the question is, how does he do this? If he's just a man, he can't. But he was not just a man. He was a man who was aided by the Spirit, who was aided by God. His information, unlike the information of others, comes from a reliable source. And that makes all the difference. If you would, let's look at verse 1, and we're going to just track through the 10 verses of today's text. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this happened in real time and space, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. All right, something that we should make clear at the outset today. Daniel chapter 7 represents a significant transition point in the whole book. Up until this point, if you're reading like the first six chapters of Daniel, what you would have seen is that there's all sorts of historical narrative. Remember, there, there's lion's dens and fiery furnaces and handwriting on the wall. There's a lot of historical narrative and there's prophecy that's kind of sprinkled in across the first six chapters. Well, it's the exact opposite as we get to the last six chapters. The last six chapters are predominantly about prophecy. They deal with prophecy, and then there's just history kind of sprinkled therein. And that's what we see in verse 1. The history is that in the first year of Belshazzar, who was the last king of Babylon, remember this idiot son of a guy, this co-region of a guy who's going to have a wild party the night Babylon falls. Well, it's in the first year of this guy's reign that Daniel is having a dream, a dream that he doesn't understand in the least. Now, 
This dream, like many other dreams in Daniel, and like the reading that we heard earlier in the book of Revelation, this is what we call apocalyptic literature. What does that mean? Well, not all prophecies you would call apocalyptic. If scripture anticipates that Jesus was to be born in a certain place and it happens to be fulfilled that way or it is fulfilled that way through the decree of God, that is a fulfilled prophecy, but it's not necessarily apocalyptic. When we talk about apocalyptic literature, we're talking about those things that have imagery and symbols that are very difficult to parse, that generally speak towards the end times, and which usually, usually the prophet involved has to have an interpreter to tell him what's going on. Daniel, John, later in the book of Revelation, they were observing, witnessing many things, but time and time again, you know what happens? There's an angel, there's someone next to him explaining and saying, this is what's happening. Typically, that's what we find in apocalyptic literature. Now, verse 1 in today's reading, if earlier in the first six chapters we were kind of on, on the, the shallow end with regards to how difficult the text was going to be, as soon as we hit verse 1, things get quite a bit deeper. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. But Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up from the sea, each different from one another. Now, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Now, on the one hand, that sounds kind of abstract. You and I, when we talk about lions out of wings and there's hearts and they're standing on the feet and all that, that can sound a little bit abstract. But I tell you to Daniel, it was not abstract in the least. He knew exactly what this beast was. He knew exactly what this represented. But before we talk about that and identify, let's talk about the location of what's going on here. So in his dream, he's by what he identifies as the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea here, a lot of people try to identify, okay, which body of water would this be? Well, it's, it's not the Red Sea and it's not the Dead Sea. Most folks think it must be the Mediterranean Sea because that would have been the largest body of water that Daniel would have been familiar with. I don't think it's the Mediterranean Sea that Daniel is talking about. In Revelation 17, there was discussion of another sea. Do you remember what that referred to? Well, in Revelation, an angel tells Daniel what it referred to. He says, the waters that you see where this harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, when we talk about the great sea, we're not talking about a literal body of water, that literal wet beast come out that they were immersed in. That's not what is being referred to here. Instead, what's being referred to here is the sea of humanity. The nations. The waters that you saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And that suggests that when these beasts come out, they're not coming out just out of the water like Leviathan. These are beasts that are coming out of mankind. These are nations coming out of nations. These are people coming out of the sea of humanity. Now, with that said, what Daniel sees is a monster. He sees a beast. In verse 4, the first of these monsters is described as one who looks like a lion. It happens to have eagle's wings, but it looks like a lion. Now, what's going on there? If any of you are familiar with Dr. Moreau, this sounds something like this. This is like a Frankensteinian creation. You have a lion that has eagle's wings, and it's only going to get weirder the further we get into this text. So what's going on here? What's, what's taking place here with these animals with different characteristics? Characteristics that imply different things. Because when you think of a lion, you think of strength and, and ferocity and like. When you think of wings, you think of speed or mobility and so forth. So what's being implied here? Is this an actual creature that some will face? Now, in reading up on the commentators over the years, there's folks who have every view on the end times that you can imagine. And I've encountered one who had the view that this was an actual beast that will meet in the end times. An actual beast will rise that will look just like that. I hope not. My insurance covers a lot. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't cover this. I don't believe this is going to be a winged lion that's going to be roaming the earth at some future time. I think it means something entirely different. 
later on in this chapter, the irony is an angel is going to show up later on. He's going to say that this is not an actual beast that we all have to be terrified about, but this beast represents something. The angel is going to say later on in chapter 7 that the beasts that we see here represent kings or kingdoms, that that's what's being represented here. So then the question comes, all right, so we got a beast, a scary beast, this lion with wings, comes up out of the water that represents humanity. All right, if he's supposed to be a king or a kingdom, then which one is it? Which one is it? Well, as I told you before, I think Daniel knew. You know, when Daniel walked around, when he walked around through Babylon, especially when he came out near the palace, you know what he saw? Well, typically, especially outside the palace, he saw two statues, two statues. Guess what they were? They were lions with wings. Archaeology's history has shown us that the primary symbol that the king of Babylon had was, guess what? It was a lion with wings. This was a symbol of the nation that would have been very familiar to Daniel. Now, furthermore, in verse 4, when Daniel says that the wings in his vision were plucked off and that the beast was made to stand on two feet like a man and that a man's heart was given to it, which Babylonian king does that remind you of? Nebuchadnezzar! It would appear that verse 4 is pointing us towards the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He was a proud man. He was a wicked man. He's an evil man. He's a depraved man. He's walking around the kingdom. He's walking between these statues alike. He looks around and he says, look at this kingdom which has been made for my glory. And in that moment, remember what happened? God had struck him dumb right there. He became like a beast of the field. For a number of years, seven years, he's out roaming. He's in the grass, wet with the dew. His nails growing long. He's getting gross. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. But then... At the end of that time, he lifted his eyes unto heaven. He lifted his eyes, and Scripture says that his understanding returned to him. And from that point forward in Scripture, we see him praising and extolling the God of all creation. King Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked, depraved man, we believe that this was a moment of regeneration. This wicked, depraved king, much like wicked, depraved Saul of Tarsus, was changed through the sovereign will of God for God's own purposes, that which he had once been like a beast at enmity with a God who made him, he was now like a man. He had his heart of stone, was turned to a heart of flesh. He was able to see and embrace his creator. In verse 4, Daniel would have understood that that's exactly what was going on. In verse 4, we see that the wings were plucked off. And the beast was made to stand on two feet. He didn't stand on his own. God empowered him to do that. Made to stand up on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. This is the regeneration of Nebuchadnezzar. This beast is Babel. There's a lot we can't be sure of, and there's a lot I won't be this dogmatic about as we go through the book of Daniel. But this we can be. This we can be. This beast is a dead ringer to the nation of Babylon. And chronologically, it makes sense, too. If we're talking about kings and kingdoms, this was the first, the first kingdom. This was the head of gold. Remember in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, the head of gold? That Daniel said, that's you, that's the king, that's Babylon? It makes sense chronologically that this would also be the first beast. If it was the head, this is also the first beast to come out of the waters. All right, let's look at the second beast in verse 5. And suddenly, another beast, a second beast like a bear. And this bear was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. All right. One minute, Daniel sees this terrifying lion coming up out of the sea here. But then a second beast replaces it. A second beast comes in the picture. This one, ferocious. Formidable, a little ponderous due to its size, but a beast that is not to be tangled with, he sees a bear. Now, if the first beast typified a king or a kingdom, and we believe it to be Babylon, then what did the second beast typify? The angel said it's a king or a kingdom, then what would it have typified? 
Well, chronologically, it makes some sense to start there. Who was it that took out the Babylonians? Any idea? The Persians, right. The Medes and, and, and the Persians, led by King Cyrus. We talked about this last week. Remember, you had Belshazzar, the idiot's son. He's having the party. He's having this bacchanalia. He's doing all sorts of things. The enemy's camped at his door. He thinks they're safe. He thinks the walls are too high. They're too wide. They're too strong. And the enemy comes underneath by damming up the river and takes him out, and not a single spear was thrown in defense of the city. They were taken out in one night, just as Daniel said they would. He says, Belshazzar, it is over. The party ends for you tonight. And that very night, the king was killed. Cyrus and the Persians, they sweep in. Babylon, for as great and mighty and powerful as it was, it was over. It was taken out by the bear, Persia. In 537, this occurred. The Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Now, this was, interestingly, one of three major victories that Cyrus and the Persians had. There were three primary enemies that they took out across the duration of their reign. One was Babylon, of course. The other two were Lydia and Egypt, three major victories. Well, these victories, if we look at verse 4 of today's text, these victories seem to be, seem to be represented by the three ribs that are dangling from the teeth of this monster. These are three victories won. Three enemies destroyed and, and chewed over. That appears to be what Daniel saw here. Now, additionally, notice in verse 5, it says where the bear is raised up on one side. That's a weird thing to notice. There's all sorts of curious or weird observations in, in Revelation and Ezekiel and Daniel, all sorts of things that you go, well, what does this mean? So as you come to Daniel and you read about this bear, and it happens to mention that the bear was raised up on one side, why that? Why this particular observation? Well, remember that when we talk about the Persians, we are talking about the Medes and Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire at this time. It existed with two large people groups. The Persians had taken out the Medes. Two large people groups were driving its empire. But the Persians were stronger. The Persians were stronger. In other words, you could say the Persians dominated the Medes. In that sense, the Persians of the two sides of this bear, you could argue, were raised up. They were stronger, stronger than the other side. Now, side note here. These are small details, but they speak to the exact, exact historical specifications that even secular history records with regards to these people groups and these nations. These are small details, but they go a long way in helping us identify these beasts and furthermore in validating biblical prophecy. The more you see a confluence between what's recorded here centuries before an event happened and the way that the events unfold, at the very least, should make you go, hmm, interesting. To those of us who have spent time in Scripture, it affirms what we know to be true, that God is sovereign, he's in charge, and he's recorded in his word, his sovereign decree that spans all generations. Okay, let's look at the third beast in verse 6. After this, I looked, and there was another. I imagine Daniel's heart has been beating out of his chest as he's watching all this. There was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings like a bird. Now, this beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. All right, who is this? Who is this? If we were to fast forward in time into what you might call the intertestamental age, in the year 331 B.C., there was a young, ambitious man that we know as Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. And he led the Greeks in battle against the Persian Empire. Now, in relatively short order, Alexander was victorious. The story of Alexander the Great, remember, what makes him great is how fast and capable he was in victory. The guy ruled the world by the time he was 33, conquered everything there was to be conquered. He did so with, with tremendous speed, tremendous strength, tremendous cunning and, and understanding of strategy. And again, by the time he was 33, when he died, he, he ruled the globe. 
It's not hard at all to connect the dots that he did so with the speed of a leopard, panther, something like this. He achieved world domination faster than anyone would ever imagine, especially given the tools that he had to work with at that time. So with that said, when we come to verse 6 and we're figuring out, okay, well, which, which nation, which kingdom would this have been? Well, history tells us, history already points us towards Alexander the Great and, and the Greeks. And verse 6 gives us information that really does lean in that direction. Now, there's something else verse 6 adds that helps us even more understand this as the Greeks. And verse 6, notice the beast had four heads. Now, outside of being fodder for bad dreams, what does that mean? What's the implication? Does it matter? Well, I think it does. I think it does because I think it bears witness to us who this was. The four heads. Now, when Alexander the Great died, remember he did so at a young age, and he did so really having conquered the bulk of the modern world at that time. But the kingdom was too large. The kingdom was too big to be readily governed at this time, especially with a leader, frankly, less strong than he was. And so at that time, guess what happened? They divided the kingdom into how many parts? Four parts. The Greek kingdom was divided into four parts. The empire was divided into four parts. A man named Cassander took over what's called Macedonia. Lysimachus took Asia Minor. Seleucius took Syria. Ptolemy took Egypt. Most scholars, it doesn't matter what the traditions are, reformed or not reformed, think that these men are the four heads of Daniel's vision, which I think makes sense given the chronology in which these beasts are unveiled and everything we know in secular history. Now, let me stop for a moment before we continue and read about the last, the last of these beasts. In today's reading and in the rest of the book of Daniel, there are times when certain prophetic uh, information, when certain data points, we can stand back and go, aha, and we can connect the dots. And we can say, this means that. And we can feel a little bit better about our understanding of Scripture, and we can walk away as if we understand something. And sometimes that's true. There's times when we see something, like we've covered the first three beasts here, that really seems to be reasonably clear. Not everyone agrees, mind you. I want to make this clear. There's nothing we're going to talk about in the last half of Daniel that everyone agrees with. Not a thing. There will be many commentators that have views on just about everything. I read a commentator this week who had a more dispensational look at things and had a more modern take on the beast. And he looked at the beast and said, well, it's simple. These beasts, the lion is, is England. The bear is Russia because Russia is, is the bear. The leopard is Germany. And he made a whole case based on that. I don't believe that. But my point is this. People have all sorts of takes on this stuff. All sorts of takes. Now, I believe the first three beasts we've talked about, again, that's relatively clear, but I just want to make clear to you that you are called to do your own due diligence, like Bereans, to see whether these things are so. I'm suggesting to you the preponderance of scholarly consideration from the reform perspective on who these beasts are, but I encourage you to do your own diligence on these matters. And furthermore, I'd encourage you to be careful about being too dogmatic about eschatology. Now, what do I mean by that? Back when we were in Gillette, Wyoming, in a church plant, one of the things we did every summer without fail, we had something called Gospel to Gillette, and we set up a tent at the county fair, and we distributed bottles of water that had the gospel written on it, and we had a huge stack of Bibles, and we distributed Bibles. We gave hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Bibles over the years that we were there. People were, were pretty ready to take them. But there's always people who came up to the booth and they had questions, and I'm telling you the questions were generally about the end times. I had one guy. And he came up, and he only wanted to know one thing about me as a pastor and the church and so forth and so on. He had one thing he wanted to know. He wanted to know about the white horse in the book of Revelation. He says, I just got the one question. And I looked at him, and I'm trying to figure out, well, that's an odd one question. And he says, your answer will tell me a great deal. I'm thinking, okay, well, what, 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 do, I do, with, what do I do with that? 
I sat there, and you know, this is probably my second year of ministry, so I'm sitting there, and I'm pretty green anyway, trying to think this stuff through. And I think, well, tell you what, I have a question for you. If you can give me some feedback on this, then we can talk about the white horse. But let me ask you a question first. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, immediately, the gentleman became kind of flustered a little bit. And I said, let me be clearer. When I talk about the gospel, tell me about what Christ did and why it was necessary. Well, he died. I said, well, let's expand on that. And as we begin to talk about some of those things, real quickly, he became increasingly frustrated. He said, no, 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 no. He says, that's basic stuff. He says, that's 101. What I want to know of you is about the white horse. And I told him this. I said, look, the richest mystery you will ever unearth is not going to be found with the white horse in Revelation. The deepest, richest mystery deals principally with the gospel of, of a God who comes down to die upon a cross for sinful people like you and I. To the degree you understand anything about the, what the book says, to the degree I understand anything about what the book says, we have to understand that. Beasts, horses, seals, bulls, these are helpful, important things. They're not irrelevant. They're in the book, so we should study them. We should know them, but be careful. Be careful not to be unduly dogmatic about that which there is no biblical consensus. Be careful about your point of emphasis. Understand the gospel. Understand propitiation. Understand justification. Understand sanctification. This is the bread and butter of Christianity. I love eschatology, and we're going to spend a number of weeks in it. But at the outset, I just want to make clear that the most fundamental, important part of what we find in Scripture deals with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, interestingly, Daniel. Daniel's going to drive us there in just a moment. In 7 and 8, we see this. I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, as I was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. All right. If the beasts were actually kings or kingdoms, then who is represented by this fourth beast of iron? Well, the one point that virtually everyone agrees upon is that the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire, at least the initial Roman Empire. Chronologically, that would make the most sense. The details that we see here, the iron, the strength, the ferocity and, and such, it seems to um, have a, a confluence with our understanding of Rome. The iron that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about in Daniel chapter 2 with the feet intermixed with iron, we see that iron coming up here, verses 7 and 8. What about the horns, though? What about the horns? What about, more specifically even than that, what about the little horn that Daniel says had the eyes of a man and spoke pompously or blasphemy? Who is this? Who is this? Well, Daniel, if you were to look at the last half of uh, chapter 7 of Daniel, if you look at the last half of today's chapter, you would see that Daniel has his own questions about the horn. The first three kings are beasts, not so much. He is interested in the horn. He's interested in his last beast and the issues of the horn. And undoubtedly, that's where our questions are as well. With that said, that is what we're going to be studying in our next study. We're going to be talking about the horns. We're going to be talking about this beast. We're going to talk about the different options of who this might be and the like. So we're going to talk about that at greater length, but we'll have to do so for time's sake in our next chapter. For now, though, let's look at the last verses for today, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning with fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. 
A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. All right, in the first eight verses, Daniel watched the series of beasts come up out of the water, representing these different nations. The series of beasts arise out of what we talked about as the sea of fallen humanity, the seas of, of kings and of kingdoms. Now, each of these beasts has been terrifying. I wouldn't want to meet one of these things. Each of these beasts, from the iron teeth and stomping and chewing and biting and ribs dangling out of the mouth and the like, the visual picture we get here is probably just a shade of what it looked like to Daniel. Again, earlier I said his heart was probably beating out of his chest. I'm sure it was. These are horrific. These were nightmarish. You know, sometimes in movies you have PG-13 or rated R stuff. These were rated R beasts. These were the sort of things your jaw drops to the ground in seeing them. They're scary. They were beast-like and they were violent. And in that sense, these kings and these kingdoms and these nations, they're really no different than all the nations that preceded them and nations that come thereafter. However, in verses 9 through 10, the scene shifts upward. Specifically, verses 9 and 10, we're no longer looking at things coming out of the sea of humanity. We're no longer seeing monster after monster come out of these waters, so to speak. Instead, Daniel is given a vision up, up, not from that which comes from beneath, but a vision upward. At this point, we believe he's given a vision of the, the heavenly kingdom. And in this kingdom, it's not a beast who rules. In this kingdom, it's not something scary. It's not something violent. It's not something with, with animal qualities. It's not a terrifying figure that he sees on the throne there in the sense that it has iron teeth and blood dripping from his jaws and the like. Rather, this kingdom is reigned over by one who is holy, a divine personage. The others are beasts. In this, we see a divine personage. And his, his clothes, they're not covered in blood. His clothes here are white, as white and as righteous as the one who wears them. His hair, as Daniel sees it, it's like pure wool. His hair is like pure wool. His, his throne is like a fiery flame. This is altogether different than the beast that he had seen earlier. This figure transcends, is greater than, is more holy, is more pure, is more mighty, is more strong than all the beasts combined that Daniel had previously seen. We're meant to focus on this contrast. This contrast is the key. We talked about the beast and how cool it is to look at the beast and say, well, the foreheads might be these guys and so forth. That is the least important part of Daniel 7. The most important part of Daniel 7 is this. There are kings, there are kingdoms, there are nations. They beat one another up. They succeed one another in time. None of them ends up standing. They all fall given enough time that go by. And yet there is one who doesn't. There's one who reigns over them. And he is not like them. They are sinful. They are violent. He is wonderful. He is great and majestic and loving and kind and patient. We're supposed to see the distinction, the contrast, the contrast between these two things. In 9 and 10, we're supposed to see that there is a kingdom that transcends the kingdoms of men. And it's a kingdom that still stands even as every other kingdom is brought low. Let me look to it to wind up by sharing a few thoughts that will help propel us into our continuing study. As I said a moment ago, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who these nations were, who the beasts were in Daniel 7. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Whether they were Rome, Greece, Persia, any other kingdoms, not terribly relevant. The relevant fact is this, that they all went down, that they all fall. Whatever their attributes, however many heads they have, however fast they are, however ferocious, however many ribs are between their teeth, they all fall. Every last one of them. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. And eventually they're replaced by other ones. And the other ones typically use the same sort of force that the first ones did, because that is the trajectory of man. And so while it's interesting to speculate 
on these beasts, they're really of secondary concern here. The primary figure here is God himself. The primary figure is God himself. Daniel would have wanted us to understand that, which is why I believe in the middle of this chapter, in the middle of the chapter, before we even get to who the horn was and whether it's the Antichrist and when he is and who he is and all that stuff, Daniel wants to lift our focus. God wants to lift our focus. And remember that to some extent it doesn't matter who the beasts are. There's one who reigns over them, who holds the keys of hell and death, one who defeats and conquers, one who raises up nations and brings them down. God alone is the star, the centerpiece of not only Daniel 7, but the whole book of Daniel, the whole Bible itself. And Daniel makes that clear when he describes the throne room of this one, this perpetual throne room that doesn't end. To this very day, guess what? Babylon is scrub brush. We've talked about this before. If you go looking for Babylon, it's ruins. It's in the dirt. There's sagebrush and bones. That's what will happen if you go looking for Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon is no more. What about the kingdom of God? To this day, there are 10,000 by 10,000 standing ministering before God. To this day, he's no less powerful than he was then. Every other kingdom has fallen. There's no kingdom among men that can say this. But the kingdom of God endures forever. God's kingdom transcends and it permeates the nations, the nations of men. There's no nation state on the face of the earth, including our own, that in time will not be rolled up like a scroll. Not a one. And if you think ours is different, if you think ours is different, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander thought theirs were different too. Didn't work out well for them. The state is not man's savior. The state is not man's savior. The state is not man's God. The tides of humanity may churn, foam, and produce all manner of beasts. It will not last, but the throne of Jesus Christ stands forever. No matter what may come in our generation or generations of the tiniest among us, it will be no different. The throne of Jesus Christ stands forever. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's sermon as we've studied God's Word together. To receive notifications of our next episode, please subscribe to this podcast.